Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our presentation on how to make the most of an appointment with your lawyer. If this is your first time joining our virtual event series, my name is Shannon, and I'm part of the community and events team at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And today I have the pleasure of introducing my colleagues, Michelle Mulchin, Carolyn Warner, Annie Ektayan, and Russell Alexander. Before I share more about our speakers, I'm just going to take a few moments to let you know what we have in store for you over the next hour. So in this presentation, the panel will be sharing valuable insights on how to best prepare for appointments in order to optimize clients and lawyers' time together. They will be focusing on the following topics. Be prepared, list your questions in advance. Don't send multiple emails. Getting your financial disclosure ready. Ordering your documents. Intake form and supplemental information. Focusing on the big picture. Doing research and having a social worker and therapist. And as always, we'll be taking questions from the audience throughout the presentation for the panelists to address. And we also just ask that you keep in mind that the content of this webinar is intended to provide general information and should not be considered as legal advice. And now it's time to give a bit more background on our presenters. So first we have Michelle Mulchin, who is our senior managing lawyer, and she has been practicing family law for over 13 years and is skilled in all areas of family law, including divorce, custody access, property division, child and spousal support, and family responsibility office enforcement matters. Her focus is on creating comprehensive creative resolutions to family law matters. And Michelle also excels at helping clients deal with complex financial issues that arise as a result of separation. Next, we have Carolyn Warner, and Carolyn is a fully trained collaborative family lawyer who has a knack for developing creative resolutions unique to each client's situation. Carolyn has been practicing family law exclusively for over 10 years since her call to the bar in 2011, and she is committed to providing her clients with empathy and sound advice and prides herself on approaching all cases with an analytical and tenacious mindset. Next, we have Annie Ektein, who has been a family lawyer for over 10 years, and her practice includes litigation, alternative dispute resolutions, such as mediation and or arbitration, and where appropriate collab collaborative practice in which she is certified. As a family lawyer, Annie's priority is understanding her client's objectives, looking out for their interests, and guiding them through the process, whichever route their particular matter takes. Her advice to her clients is practical and informed by professional experience and the knowledge that she's gained over the last decade of practicing family law. And last but certainly not least, we have Russell Alexander, who is the founder and senior partner of our firm. With 25 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law, and he uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to, to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. So on that note, I will let Russell take it away from here. Thank you for those kind words, uh, Shannon. How can our audience ask us questions. So they can send in those questions through the Q&A box. Um, the chat has been disabled, and this is just to make sure everyone um, remains an anonymous to one another, um, but the Q&A is available there to everyone. That's great. So send in your questions, please. Um, give us your feedback. We're gonna be doing polls throughout. Please participate in the polls. It, makes us, it helps us understand who our audience is and we can tailor our presentation. There'll be a survey at the end. Please complete that if you have any ideas for new topics um, that we could present on, please include those. We're gonna give everybody a minute to tell us a little bit about yourself so we can understand who our audience is. And we do have some questions that came in in advance. So 
One of them is, can you provide an estimate of the potential costs involved in my case? So we always get this question, um, how much is going to go up? Is it going to cost? <laughs> There's no answer to that, um, but let's see what our panel thinks. Michelle, what do you yeah. tell clients when they say what's going to cost them? Well, hopefully it's not at the very first meeting because at the very first meeting, we have no idea yet, but it depends, you know, what, through, it depends what it involves, right? That's it, right? We go yeah. through the options. Are we going through negotiation? Are we going through litigation? Are we going to a trial on this issue? Are we going on one issue? Are we going on five issues? Are we going on 15 issues? Do we need to have experts? So I always tell my clients that one of the best things you can do for yourself is to settle the issues you can settle and then just narrow it down so that if you do have to do a trial, at least you're doing it on one or two issues, not 15 issues. Yeah. Carolyn, what do you tell clients about costs? Yeah, it's very hard to predict. And just as to Michelle, it also depends on how many stages you are in court, whether or not you have one conference or two conferences. It also depends. And I always say the reality is it depends on the other person. Yeah. Because the more amicable that the both parties are, more reasonable, the less you're going to spend in legal fees, hands down. But if you've got another spouse on the other side that you know might be a little bit more difficult or you reach an impasse on a particular issue, it can get quite costly. Annie, your take on this question? I actually do get asked this quite a bit in consults. And my answer is always, I cannot tell you how much it'll cost and I cannot tell you how long it'll take. And I would echo what Carolyn said, That's where it, it's not just, yeah, it's not just based on the client. It's based on the right. other party. It's based on their lawyer's approach to the issues. And it's based, frankly, on jurisdiction. You know, some courts are busier than others. Some courts are set up in such a way that you, you end up spending more because of the way they're organized. So it's an impossible question to answer. There are too many variables. One of the biggest factors, I think, is it depends on who your spouse chooses as their lawyer, right? Are they going to get one of these arsonists that want to burn everything to the ground? Or are they going to get a you know, peacemaker who wanted to work collaboratively? You know, so their advocates really going to dictate what direction the matter is going to go in and potentially the costs associated with that. Um, but great discussion. Let's see who our audience is. Let's find out a little bit more. All right. Family law professional, 54%. A lawyer in a different profession, 13%, uh, different field, 10%, going through separation and divorce, 13%, helping a loved one, 3%, and other, which you can put in the box. So thank you so much for answering that poll question. Let's make a start. Be prepared. Michelle, what do clients need to know when meeting with their lawyer? Wow, um, a lot. And so it's really nice to know our audience because I'll try to tailor this a little bit. Um, but really, you know, I like to talk to clients about options at the very first step. I talk to them about, you know, first I get a little bit of an insight, get a little bit of a history. Usually we spend the first 10, 15, 20 minutes going through that. But then we look at options. We say, okay, there's really a scale of things that you can do. Do you want to do collaborative negotiation, mediation, arbitration? And then as we go you know, across the, the scale, we get into litigation and trial. And I try to explain the, the benefits and the cons for each situation. And then I tie it into their particular um, fact scenario. And I say, hey, for you guys, I think we should start here. And usually I will start conservatively and say, let's try to resolve things, even if things are going off the rails. 
even if you have a consultation where, for instance, someone says, I want to start a court application right away. I want to do this. I want to do that. I'll say, hey, let me see. Let's do one letter, right? Let's, let's take a week. If in one letter in one week, we can't get some stuff resolved, then maybe we start a court application. But let's not jump into, you know, the fire, first of all. Um, I would also say, look at your lawyer and, and look at what their strengths are. Look at what their abilities are. Are they collaboratively trained? Do they do mediations? Do they do arbitrations? Are they a mediator themselves? What year of experience they are? I think it's helpful to marry the client with the lawyer. And sometimes if I get a client, for instance, who I think, you know, great person, great client, but I think Carolyn would be a better fit because she's a mediator mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they need someone with that experience, we'll actually um, cross-reference them to Carolyn. So I think that's really helpful when you're looking at your expertise and the client's ex expectations or needs and trying to filter that. All right. I also think you need, go ahead. No, go ahead, sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, it's, it's okay. I also think you need to look at personalities and look at bios and get some Google reviews. You can get some really great ideas just by looking at the reviews of the type of lawyer, you know, their capabilities, what, you know, how responsive they are. Um, you know, are they, are they going to be a lawyer that's going to jump right into litigation? Uh, are they going to be cost effective? You, you'll get a really good idea, idea from that from Google reviews. I always love going to Google reviews for everything. And then also personal recommendations. I can't tell you how many people I get uh, who come recommended by a friend or a family member or someone at their work who had used me five, 10 years ago. I think I got the biggest compliment recently where the opposing party sent his new girlfriend to me. And I thought, wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's really nice that uh, he has so, so much uh, high expectations of my services that he would send his new girlfriend to my firm. So, you know, check out your personal recommendations. Um, in big firms, so in our firm, for instance, we actually have our staff sometimes do personality matches. So for instance, I do a lot of IPV, intimate partner violence, um, but may, we have lawyers who do criminal law. We have lawyers who do wills and estates. Uh, we have someone on our team who can actually do a, just a little bit of, of um, real estate, pulling pins and things like that. So it's nice to, if you have maybe a criminal aspect to your file or maybe your ex-spouse has a criminal aspect that maybe will pair you up with a lawyer who has some of that expertise as well. Um, for lawyers, I think it's really good to speak to your clients about your particular working style. So, you know, how responsive are you to emails? I know people who say right on their voicemail, I don't check my voicemail. So send me an email if you want to, to have this. I like to have my clerks book calls and I have it right in my reline that if you want to speak to me the fastest way sometimes because I'm in court, I'm in mediation, I'm traveling because we're going back into the office now and into court um, is to just call my clerk or call my intake and they'll book a call for you sometimes the same day. Maybe you're a lawyer who hates calls and you like emails, you know, let your client know what's the easiest, best way to look um, to look for you. And some firms have started moving towards a calendar system where you can actually book directly into a lawyer's calendar. So I think making it easy for your clients to know your working style and how you want to deal with these things really starts that relationship on a good note because they have an idea, ah, if I want to speak to Michelle, this is the best way to do it.
Great stuff. So let's go to the next poll, find out what our audience is thinking. Do you create an agenda before a meeting with your client or lawyer? And just a few points on your comments about being prepared, Michelle. I hope I'm not talking into somebody else's talking points, but you want to manage expectations, right? Especially if you're the lawyer. Uh, the expectations sometimes you said in that first meeting uh, could be huge. So if you just ballpark a support figure, maybe go high and you don't get that result in motions court, you're going to have an upset client. You also need to give your client bad news when it's necessary, right? Somebody comes in and says, I don't want to pay support. It could be clear that they have an obligation to pay support. You need to deliver that bad news. Your client shouldn't be receiving bad news for the first time from their case management judge. Uh, and judges hate that. The judges expect lawyers to deliver bad news to the clients ahead of time to set realistic expectations. Um, but great stuff. Let's see what our audience thinks about an agenda. Yes, 68%, no, 16%. Uh, write an email, 5%. I never thought about it, 11%. You know, you've got a short window of time to make an impression on your lawyer and for the lawyer to make an impression on the client. I think agendas are essential. Uh, and, and it helps, it provides your client with a roadmap. This is what we're going to talk about today. This is how we're going to go through things and ask questions through. All right. So speaking of questions, list your questions in advance. We're back to you, Michelle. Thank you, everybody, for answering that poll question, by the way. Thanks so much. So, yeah, this is actually something I do often um, with my clients, and I invite my clients to do the same thing with me, is to send an agenda or send the list of things that you want to chat about. Sometimes a client will bring something up in the middle of a meeting and I'd say, oh, darn it, I wish I knew in advance because I could have prepared some case law or, you know, done some calculations if you want to do something interesting. Um, so if you let your lawyer know in advance, they can be more prepared. And at the start of the meeting, I'll say, hey, you know, this is what I want to talk to you about. But what are the things that you want to talk to me about? And we'll add it to the agenda and then we'll say, OK, let's. Let's pick the order that we're going to deal with these things, because some of these things, you know, mesh nicely together, or usually there's overlap about things that we're, you know, we want to talk about. Um, so I think that's that's that, really that's helpful. a great tip, right? Because at the end of the meeting, you go through your list and say, okay, I've answered this question, and you can tick them off and say, we've answered all your questions. Is there anything else? Oh, absolutely. The other thing I do a lot is I'm a highlighting person, as you know, Russ. Um, so. A lot of the times I'll send clients a homework list right as we're ending the meeting. So I'll say, okay, we talked about this. Here's the whole list of things that we talked about that you need to provide me. And because I've created that agenda, it's really simple, right? I'm just going through and copying and pasting all the to-dos. And so for instance, it seems a little gendered, but I always do the pink for me as all the things that I need to do next. And I do the blues for the clients. And then, you know, whether they're male or female, it doesn't matter. And then for yellows, I'll, I'll have my clerk say, hey, maybe you need to follow up with the client about their income tax returns or check with the opposing counsel. They haven't responded to this letter. So I find that really helpful and it keeps structured. It also helps for later when you go back, because remember, clients are going through one of the hardest periods of their lives. And sometimes, you know, when you tell them something, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's great. But, you know, they go off to work or a kid is interrupting them or they're going off to a baseball game and they forget that they're supposed to give us this stuff. So having a nice little email that, you know, I've already generated through the conversation 
gives a reminder to both of us, oh yes, this is still outstanding. And this is something I do not just in the first meeting, but all the way throughout, you know, remind the clients that, hey, I've sent you this homework list, still missing uh, some of the, the materials, remind them that the more they do, the less I have to do, which is ultimately saving them time and money, which is really important. And um, I also find that for some clients who aren't giving us the disclosure, sometimes just sending them that first bill saying, hey, we had this one hour call, we came up with our, our homework, I've sent you the homework, I've followed up every week for the last three weeks, and here's the financial repercussions of you not providing that. Uh, very often that will remind them, oh shoot, yes, you know, I need to get this off to Michelle. So these are just some, some you know, simple things that you could do when you're either meeting with your lawyer or when you're a lawyer meeting with your client to keep everyone on track as to what has to happen. Great tips. Thank you, Michelle. Let's go to our next poll. Find out what our audience is thinking. Should lawyers be doing consultations for free? And we'll give everybody a moment to answer this poll. Annie, I've got a question for you that came in. Um, how much time should a client allocate for this appointment that they're going to have with their lawyer? What would you say? I am a big fan of uh, taking more time than you think you will actually need. It's always better than being rushed in the end. So I always have um, appointments, even if I think it'll be a 15 minute appointment, I always ask my clerk to block an hour for a call because you never know what will come up. You never know what the other person's processing time is if you're giving them information. So I would say do one hour blocks, understanding that you may not need all of that. Obviously, if it's a longer appointment, if it's a drafting appointment, the parameters are different. But if it's a conversation appointment, I block for an hour. And for clients, build in extra time, make it stuck in traffic, keep the sitter on standby for a few extra hours in case uh, the meeting goes long. Um, so you don't want to rush out of that first meeting with your lawyer that you had to maybe wait a week or two to get uh, to have to cut it short because you have child care or other arrangements you have to attend to. All right. Thank you for that, Annie. Let's see what our audience is thinking. Um, should we do consultations for free? Uh, yes, absolutely. 23%. No, you get what you pay for. 38% depends on the length of the appointment. 30% depends on financial means of the client and other, both coming in at 5%. Thank you. Quite a range of opinions in terms of fees for initial consultations, but let's go to our next topic. Don't send multiple emails. I'm going to sense, Annie, you don't like lots of emails. What's happening here? Yes, this is a big bugbear of mine, and I'll I'll sort of divide this into, into two tranches. So one is not everything can or should be an email. We've all heard the complaint when people, you know, talk about office meetings, and they say, oh, this meeting could have been an email. I find that often in our jobs, it's with clients, it's the opposite. This email needs to be a phone call. So I will address that first and then talk about the sending of multiple emails. So as lawyers, we have to use our discretion and our judgment and decide if the things that we need to discuss with a client are part of a conversation or not. And if they are part of a conversation, because there is, as you say, Russ, bad news that has to be given, or if there are concepts that need to be explained, then that is not a one-way um, passing of information that an email is suited for. That is a phone call. And that is a phone call that is then followed up with an email where you can summarize what you discussed. 
the concepts need to be walked through. And sometimes clients, they're busy. They say, no, just tell me in an email. I'll read it when I'm at the traffic lights. And I have to put my foot down and say, no, this has to be a conversation. I really want to explain this to you. I'll have so-and-so reach out and set up a call and you have to be firm about that. And there's lots of then nuances there... in emails, right? People may read it differently than you intended. Just, yeah. That's just the form of the communication, right? Or they may get really upset. You cannot convey email. tone. Yeah. They might think, okay, why is this person upset with me? Yeah. Why is this person upset with me? Why is this person siding with my wife? Why is all it all that? caps? Yeah. <laughs> Three exclamation points. And sometimes I do that. Sometimes I want to make sure that somebody notices something. I bold it and I underline it and it's hard to convey tone. Whereas, and sometimes people think if you put something in writing, that is a conclusion that you have made as opposed to an option that is being presented. And so it's very important for me to get on the phone and to explain the reasoning behind something. But there are times where something has to be uh, via email. And that's because Generally speaking, I know for myself in my practice, if we don't have an appointment, I'm not available on the phone. Uh, my day is, is planned out too much for me to do that. And so if you have a quick question for me, I can respond to an email in a way that I can't. So there are two kinds of emails. There's one where you are providing information that I have sought. And those need to be edited and they need to be concise. And that is a way that the client can save their money, frankly. If I ask you for questions about something, and you provide me with multiple emails that are piecemeal offerings of the information I need, that is a way to make sure that your retainer gets spent because each individual email has to be read, it has to be filed, it has to be saved, the system, et cetera. Take the information that is needed, put it in one email, reread your email, make sure it makes sense to somebody who doesn't know the history. It should never be more than a few short paragraphs and then send it to your lawyer so that your lawyer can understand it, so your lawyer can process it. Do not give more information than is sought. And the reason I say that is if I'm, if I'm asking a particular question, I'm looking for information, and you give me a bunch of details, I'm not going to necessarily absorb those details if that's not what I was looking for at the time. And the next time you're asked about something, you may think, oh, but I already told you because I included that in the email that I sent you on September 12th. Well, on September 12th, we hadn't yet turned our minds to this issue. This is new information I need now. So be judicious in what you send, edit it, and make sure that you're only providing what is being asked for. When it comes to things like disclosure, same thing. We have very specific reasons for asking for the disclosure that we ask for, as Michelle explained. And so if you go above and beyond what is asked for, it's a make work project for yourself. If we haven't asked you for it, we don't need it yet. Do not provide it. And remember, sending an email to your lawyer is not like when you're on a text chain and you send a follow-up message. Oh, by the way, did I also mention? It's not that. So if you have a question and a minute later you have a follow-up, wait until you get your response. Maybe your response from your lawyer will address what you wanted to ask. Don't anticipate, don't send multiple emails on the same subject. It makes it very difficult for your lawyer to prioritize which one of those issues we are dealing with first. And it's just a way to overcomplicate your file. So again, edit your emails, reread them to yourself, take out what's extraneous, focus on the facts, send it off and wait to get a response before there are follow-ups. And if what your lawyer tells you is this is a phone call, then accept that 
and arrange for a phone call. Your lawyer has a reason for telling you it's a phone call as opposed to an email. Great tips. I, I'm going to ask you a few questions about this topic, but let's put our poll up right now so we can get our audience working on this poll. Uh, what is the most annoying thing about dealing with financial disclosures? So we're going to come back, take a moment and give us your answers to this. But Annie, audience question on email. How do you deal with a client who only wants to communicate by email, i.e. they work shift work or are unavailable? Fair enough. So for me, it's a little different because I do tend to be more available in the evenings. So I will say to a client, I can do an evening call. I can talk to you at 630, et cetera. If somebody isn't available um, and they only want to communicate via email, I will tell them frankly that that's not always going to be possible. And there will be times that we need to speak during work hours. And that that is the reality of being involved in a family law matter. For example, if a matter is in court, you're going to have to attend court during work hours. By, by necessity of the process that you are engaged in, you are going to have to make yourself available, um, especially if what you're getting is legal advice and your lawyer needs to be able to communicate with you and have a back and forth with you, as opposed to communicating only during email. For me, that's, that's, uh, that's not something that's workable. There has to be a compromise. And this program is about your first meeting with your lawyer, but when you do get a lawyer retained, I find email can be an effective way to, co to confirm instructions, right? Our client's going to confirm you're instructed to take these steps. So if there's any confusion later on, we've got their instructions in writing. It's not a he said, she said. Exactly. And I always follow up after a phone call where we've where I've given advice or I'm waiting for instructions. I send them that email just as a reminder that this, as Michelle said, their homework. This is what I'm waiting. This is what we discussed. And I'm confirming you advised me this. And I'm confirming yeah. that I'm waiting for this. Okay, I'm going to keep you on the hot seat for one more curveball here. How about your first meeting with the client, right? The, he or she comes in. They go, oh, I've got this, uh, this reporter, this email, my my spouse received from their lawyer with their advice. Uh, this is a bit of a bomb that they bring in, right? I know what, how I would treat it, but what's your take on that, Annie? Don't look at it. Tell them you never want to be provided with anything like that yeah. again. Explain to them your uh, duties to the profession and to our governing body, and that that is privileged information, and that uh, if you were to ever, you know, be exposed to that material that you would have to, um, you know, you'd be basically conflicted out of the proceeding yeah. and wouldn't be able to act for them. Um, clients for the most part, I mean, listen, if you have a client who's not going to respect those sorts of boundaries, that's, that's clearly not a client that you would want. I find that when people try to get around that, they simply don't know. And if you tell them, no, this isn't allowed, then they will understand and they'll respect that. In fairness to the clients, they don't know, right? They may see this is the secret sauce that's going to settle the case. So the, most clients don't appreciate the confidential nature of their communication with their lawyer, especially just getting started. Uh, but for lawyers, it's a real pitfall. You never, you don't want to uh, breach that um, confidentiality. Thank you, Annie. All right. So what's our poll think? Most annoying thing about disclosure. Uh, materials you need, 11%, getting it all from different sources, 22%, um, and how long it takes to get done. So fairly variety of answers. Thank you, everybody, for answering. But it leads nicely into our next topic, which is getting your financial disclosure ready. And we're going back to Michelle on this one. 
Thanks so much, Russ. So yes, I have a love-hate relationship with financial disclosure. I have tried. You love financial disclosure? I do. I So I love finances. I love doing financial statements. I love doing NFTs. Four bankers boxes of material that shows up. Yeah. So my mom worked in banking um, her whole life. When um, I was younger, I did the banking for our family because our parents worked shift work. Dad worked during the days. Mom worked during the night. And mom was in charge of banking. So I go to the bank for her. But uh, yeah, I like I like bank statements. I like getting all of that stuff. But it is expensive. It's costly. It's difficult trying to keep on track with, you know, what have you provided? What haven't you provided? Is this the right document you've provided? Remember, clients don't, you know, don't really deal with these things often. I can't tell you how many times I've asked for an income tax return with all schedules and gotten a T4 or a notice of assessment, right? So part of that is kind of educating your clients early and saying, this is really great. Thanks for sending this. This is not quite what I need. Here's how you get this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, for me, I think it, it it's also, again, going back to the emotional aspect of this, you're taking someone who's going through a really emotionally tough time in their lives and asking them to gather a bunch of financial disclosure that they likely have no interest or desire to do. Well, checklists Um, are good. But if you think about a lot of relationships, usually one person does the finances and somebody said, okay, fine. And so now you got that somebody in your office who's never looked at the bank record. or Who's just signed their income tax return. Yeah, it could be overwhelming, right? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, we, we rely heavily on our clerks and I've got the best clerk, uh, shout out to Caitlin. And um, she will, actually Annie has Caitlin as well now, that's why she's smiling. Um, she, she will actually help clients walk through with them. You know, we'll, we'll help you to the, to the best of your ability. So what I usually do is I start the conversation by sending the documents, you know, speak to the client, say, hey, we need all this disclosure. We'll send you an email. Caitlin and I have a set email with, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to get. You know, send it to us in about a week. Try to, as Annie said, keep it all together. Keep it organized. If the first thing on the list is your income tax returns, name it number one, income tax return 2019, 2020, 2021, whatever it is, uh, tab everything. But we'll usually give you a couple of weeks because it takes a lot of time. But then if we see you're struggling, let's say two or three weeks, a couple of correspondences go by and the client says, I'm working on it, I'm working on it, or I'm having issues, we'll book a call and we'll do it via Zoom and we'll ask them to send in what they have so far. We'll put it up on the screen and we'll say, okay, don't worry, we're, we're going to make this simple for you. You don't have your income tax returns because you haven't been able to find them. Your dog ate, ate them three years ago and goodness knows where they are. Here's the 1-800 number that you can actually call and it'll get to you in three to five, sorry, two to two to three um, weeks, right? Um, let's say you're having issues getting bank statements. Did you know most of this is available online for most of the major banks? We'll actually walk them through, hey, you can go online, go onto your online banking. If you have any issues, if you need a login, call your bank. They're usually really helpful. Or if you're a, you know, if you rather go in, Call, make an appointment, go in, give them the list of things. I've already sent you the email. So you can just print out that list, you know, delete everything that they don't need to see and just give them those, those bank statements we need. And so you try to work with them. 
But this is where I like to give them the homework first, give them a couple of weeks so that if they can do it, that's great. You don't have to charge them for that. You know, they can get all of that done. But those things that they cannot find for whatever reason, we can help them. Let's say it's a client who has a ton of financial disclosure or a business or you know, it's, it's too difficult for even them to get together. We have financial neutrals that we use all the time that we can say, hey, don't worry. We have this person. They're going to help you do this, right? They're going to sit down with you. They're going to get the business statements together. They're going to get everything together in this nice disclosure package, and they're going to assist you with getting all and they, they make the lawyers' lives easy, right? You just, they prepare. Part of this what you what we get into is this merry go round of disclosure where you say somebody says you produced I didn't produce it and now you're in motions court you spend five thousand dollars on a motion uh, dealing with disclosure this is crazy right this is insanity but it's part of what litigation is but you have a neutral preparing it for both parties as credibility to the product and they can say yes it's outstanding or no it's not a great point, Russ. I, I can tell you, I sent a letter yesterday to an opposing counsel. He's opposing counsel, I don't know, five or six. So I don't fault him for this, but it's frustrating. One of those files. One of those files. And his client keeps saying we haven't sent the documents and we have the receipts and we have the courier documents because we sent it to him electronically. And then, you know, he switched lawyers. So we sent him a USB key and he switched lawyers again. Um, and some of it's even on, on um, case lines. And we're saying, okay, you know, at some point, you need to, to get ownership of this. But it's hard. It's really hard. Disclosure is one of those things. And sometimes it's an inverted. I've done that where I've asked for disclosure. Counsel says we produced it. We couldn't locate it, but he did have a cover letter saying here, I'm going to close. So that was on me. I, I thought it wasn't produced and it had been. But if you have, four, like I said, four banker bankers boxes of uh, records it's easy to overlook it sometimes oh absolutely absolutely so my I think the best way I've, I've found to deal with this is Adobe Pro and so what we'll do now is we'll put all the disclosure into a pdf it could be hundreds of pages and it's not that big uh, in terms of file size and we have a, a system where we can upload documents and people can go in at any time if you want to go in today, tomorrow, six months from now and re-download that disclosure, it's there at all times for you. And we tab everything. And so if you open up the bookmarks chart and you want to see, hey, has Michelle provided the 2019 income tax return? You can just click on it and it goes directly there. Nice. I can't tell you how many judges have said, thank you. I love this. This is so easy. It makes motions so simple. And it's a pain to do it the first time. But once you've done it once, you never have to do it again, right? You never have to have someone say, hey, you didn't send me that document. We'll say, yeah, you have one document to look at. Go to page 283, right? It's right there. I can see it. You can see it. Do you point your finger too when you're doing it? I, I'm a mom, so I always point my <laughs> finger. <laughs> so right. it, there's, there's lots of things you can do. I think it's what works best for you and your lawyer. Figure it out come up with a system so that everyone knows what the expectations are. We have AI generated tools now to help with this as well as a conversation for another presentation, but ordering your documents. Carolyn, help us out. What do we need to do here? Yeah, thanks, Russ. Like, so, what do we, first of all, why do we need to order anything? But what are we talking about? 
Yeah. So the first thing I usually talk about in a consultation is I say, as Michelle was speaking about, is financial disclosure is so fundamental in family law matters. And it's one of those things that, you know, hopefully you do it once and you do it right. Um, and then you don't have to do it again. I always often compare it to doing like a tax return. It's sort of like a little mini audit of your financial situation. Um, and it's a bit tedious, you know, to get all that paperwork together. But once you do it, it's done. So what's really helpful at our office is that we do typically send out a list of disclosure that you need and, um, you know, give you some sort of an outline of when we expect you to produce that back to us. And the reality is, is the more work that you do on your own, obviously, the less that you're going to spend on legal fees. So it's really important um, that someone's working through that list that they try and do it um, on their own instead of having us constantly follow up with them. And a major thing is, is getting your tax returns. Typically, we do uh, get the tax returns for the last three years. Sometimes we do go beyond that, depending on the circumstance. And some people do get it confused. So there's one thing is the notice of assessment, which is what you get after you filed your return. And then there's the actual income tax return. And it's crazy. A lot of the times we'll get something called like an income tax summary. And it sort of is like an idea of what the tax return is, but that is not acceptable. And if you're in a court matter or if you're you know, dealing with opposing counsel, they will not accept the tax return summary. So it's very important to get the actual return. There's a lot of meat and potatoes in the tax return too, right? Seeing how people are writing off certain expenses. And the tax, the tax return is, you know, it's the official document, the summary, you, anyone can edit it. It's like a, you know, editable document. So it's not um, reliable. So the easiest way to get your um, CRA documents, the income tax return or notice of assessment, if you don't have them um, available to you from your tax repair, or if you've done it on your own, is, is easy. It's just to log into your CRA account. So you have your typical, your username and your password. If you're like me, you probably don't remember. You have to have it reset. <laughs> but, you know, you just go in there and you um, you download it. Um, it's under, you know, the My Account. You go in your tax documents and then you're able to get um, the information. If you don't have an online account or you, or you need assistance with that, there is a wonderful 1-800 number. I think it's back in service. They were on strike for a little bit, um, but it is, um, I'll put it in the chat. Maybe I'll provide it to Shannon. It's 1-800-959-8281. And that's the number that's really super helpful. And you can actually contact the CRA and get make individual inquiries to get um, copies of, it's not your called your tax return, but it can be a good substitute, which is called your income summary of income and summary of deduction. So that is an, op an option to use if you're not able to get your actual income tax return. Another important document to obtain is if you are looking to get a divorce is your marriage certificate. So sometimes people say, oh, the spouse has it or they can't find it or um, they don't, they never actually ordered it. <laughs> so it's one of those things that you don't always get it. You might have a marriage um, like the the religious ceremony document, but not the actual certificate. So again, you can do that directly online. That's uh, serviced through the Service Ontario website. Um, and then you just fill out the information. And there usually is a, a relatively reasonable fee um, to obtain that. Um, then you pay for the certificate and then it comes within a few weeks. It is important to have the marriage certificate if you are uh, opting to get the divorce um, because it is required and the original is required or a certified true copy, like a physical copy is still required, even though now we've transitioned to um, everything being online, we actually still do need the original. And you can always go the old school way is if you can't um, do anything online, 
then you can always go to like a service Ontario location and just order like the marriage certificate um, in person or request it through the mail. All right, thank you. I'm gonna ask you a couple follow-up questions, um, but let's get our next poll up and running. So our poll five, what has been your experience or how long should it take from your initial consultation so you get to speak to the lawyer. Just on the ordering of your documents, um, most courts are of the view full disclosure is required in family law proceedings. Carolyn, how do you manage or work with a client who says, well, they don't need that information, it's not relevant, uh, I don't need to produce it. Uh, clients don't determine relevance, but how do you manage that, you know, sort of client says, I don't see why I have to give this information. Yeah, I think that comes down to like managing expectations. Russ, that's an excellent question is reporting. So a lot of the time when I get in a request from a lawyer or um, yeah, another lawyer opposing counsel letter comes in and they'll say I need A, B, C, D. Usually if I do have the time, I'll I'll give a response to my client right away, whether or not I think, you know, this document is reasonable or I'll explain right away in the email. I think you should provide one, two, three, four, five, and I'll, you know, outline the other ones where I think it may be questionable and, you know, sort of give an expectation about why I think they want and give my opinion on whether or not it should be provided. I usually, to be honest, and I, this is how I run my practice, I usually err on the side of providing disclosure. I think that, um, it just makes things a lot easier and it's a lot better to be coming, you know, to the table fully transparent. It's not good, especially if you're in a litigation where you're, you know, you're showing up at a conference and you don't mm -hmm. have disclosure complete. The judges really don't like that. And it doesn't look favorable on, on me as a lawyer or, you know, the client themselves, if they're not coming to the table, at, you know, even at a first case conference, it can be so much more productive if we're not dealing with disclosure issues or deficiencies at that stage where we can really get, you know, weigh in and get opinions on the judge on the substantive issues instead of, you know, just getting lost in those minor details. And if the judges, if the conference can't proceed because you or your client hasn't produced disclosure, there's likely going to be a cost consequence for a wasted day, right? Absolutely. And I've had that happen on both ends. <laughs> you know, I've received costs for clients and I've had some where I've sent, you know, numerous follow-ups and you warn and you say, hey, if this isn't provided by court, you might get costs against you. And, and what happens is disappointing, but it's not that they didn't have that information. Well, it's an effective tool to keep everybody hopefully moving the matter forward. Um, one quick question now that I got you on the hot seat. So for the initial consultation, Carolyn, do you explore alternative dispute resolution and other options? Absolutely. So I think like going back, I know Michelle spoke a little bit about her style and giving a spectrum. And with the changes in the legislation, like we do have an obligation as lawyers to try to resolve things outside of court rather than proceeding to litigation right away. Alternative dispute resolution may look like mediation. It might take a step up where you do mediation combined with arbitration, the difference being, you know, the mediator tries to help you resolve it. If you can't, then you might take a step up to arbitration where you have the third party decision maker. Sometimes that can be helpful if you just reach an impasse on one particular issue. Um, it can speed things along quickly. And the advantage, obviously, is that, you know, arbitration, I liken it to like hiring a private judge. I mean, you get to jointly with the other party, jointly select someone, and you're not worried about timelines in court, whereas you're waiting, you know, several months or years for a trial, you can skip to an arbitration. 
one we love, and I know we love Russ, is collaborative. Um, all of us are collaboratively trained. It's an amazing process. I, the easiest way is like, you know, divorcing with dignity. Um, and it's really a, appropriate to have a team approach in terms of having other professionals, because let's face it, we're lawyers. We're not, you know, social workers. We're not accountants. And the benefit of having a collaborative team is that you can have those skills that would be helpful from a social worker come in, help maybe with the parenting issues, help if, you know, if, if there's any struggling with emotional aspect. And then you can also have um, a family of financial professional also assist in, you know, crunching the numbers and helping with some, you know, preliminary calculations for the financial issues. And then there's also just straight negotiation, like outside of court negotiations, you know, lawyer to lawyer um, negotiations. So I think all of those tools have to be explored in a consultation as options so that, you know, parties and a person is informed on what might work for their family, because what might work what they hear happen with their friend or their sister or their neighbor down the road may not be appropriate for their circumstance. Every family is unique. Every family has different situations, and that has to be considered in, when you're determining what process would work best. Yeah, and the recent amendments to the Divorce Act require us to explore this, so council need to be mindful of that. But thank you, Carolyn. Let's see what our audience thinks here. Um, all right, when do you get in to see a lawyer? Same day, 7%, next day, 20% that week, 46%. That seems to be uh, the favorite. Two to three weeks, 17%, and other 10%. So this, I get this a lot when we, I meet new clients. <clears throat> they say they've called a lawyer. They either don't get a call back or they're waiting three weeks. Uh, let's canvas our panel. What do you think is a reasonable time for us to get somebody into our office? I, and we had somebody yesterday <laughs> Owned our intake team wanted to come in that day to get their divorce, like a drive-through or something, right? It's, so, uh, Annie, what do you think? How how quickly should clients be getting in to see their lawyer? Well, just to be clear, do we mean their lawyer whom they've retained or a consult? No, like the initial consultation, you're going through the phone book or Google. What should you I expect in terms of a call back or an appointment? So I always remember uh, when I was in law school, I, we had a volunteer position at a, at a legal aid clinic uh, that some of the students would work at. And I remember that the director of the clinic would always say, we are not a 7-Eleven. And that has stayed with me. Um, you have to understand that you're dealing with uh, professionals and you're dealing with people who have deadlines and other obligations that they have to meet. And so there has to be some understanding that they will not always be able to take you in um, if you are insistent that it has to be that day. And I would say that if you are insistent that it has to be that day, do some assessing and figure out why. Why are you panicking? Is this because you are you know, at a point in your life where you need to speak to somebody immediately because you're afraid you'll change your mind in the future? Is there an, actually a deadline? Yeah. Um, it's very rare that you actually need to speak to somebody that day and that you cannot wait until there's some availability in their in their schedule. I know that some law firms or identify, identify why you yeah. think it's urgent, right? If you're yeah. a identify it. and is it truly urgent? Lawyers move fairly quickly if there's urgency. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. But the test is and high. Yeah. Carolyn, yeah. what do you think a, a reasonable time period would be for clients? Well, I do a lot of like, yeah, 
I, I personally think like a week, I think, um, and I know from our team, like we work really, we have a wonderful intake team, so <laughs> I'm being a bit biased, but I know I've seen consults, I've got emails and they ask me, oh, can you chat with this person today? And I'll say, sure, <laughs> if I have the availability or I'll say, oh, you know, maybe tomorrow, but um, I know we do work really, really well together and we do book consultations very quickly. So I would say, I think a week and I see them pop up and it's usually within about a week that I have, you know, something come in my calendar. Michelle, thoughts on this? Same thing. I mean, if a client has a, you know, an urgent, urgent matter, let's say a child's been abducted, we will do our best to get them in same day or the next day. But generally about a week is, is right. And honestly, if your lawyer has availability same day with five different slots, how good if a lawyer on A? Because I can tell you my agenda, my calendar is back to back to back every single day. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes our cases settle, right? Or we our schedules open up and we can get them in quicker. Okay, thank you for that. Let's go to our next slide, intake form and supplemental information. So if a law firm asks you to complete an intake form, take the time to complete it. It's gonna make your appointment a much better experience. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And if you're a lawyer that's not using an intake form of some sort, there's lots of services out there. We have our own custom one that we use. Consider prepping an intake form just to help you with the screening process. Uh, you're gonna have to do a conflict check. You're gonna need to understand if it's the correct area of law that you're practicing in, if it's the jurisdiction that you're prepared to provide service in. So the intake form is a really valuable tool. When I see forms, uh, I'll look for certain things and ask for additional information even before I have the first meeting. So if there's reference for, to the separation agreement, I want to read that separation agreement or court order, <clears throat> having seen the issues that identified by the intake team that the client's coming in for. There's a parenting issue and there's a parenting plan. I'd like to see that parenting plan ahead of time just so I can get focused for the meeting and be prepared to answer the questions that the client's coming in. If they have a court date, I want to know about that. That's going to affect my ability whether I can take on the case. If they're in court next week and they haven't filed any documents, that's going to be a problem for me if I say we can help you and then we're, we're up against the deadline. So these are some additional things that you want to consider as clients and as lawyers for the initial process. And usually when the client comes in because they've completed the intake form, that's going to cut about 20 minutes off that first meeting where you get the standard background information. We've already got it. So we can spend that uh, time providing the client with uh, more detailed uh, responses to their questions because we have the order, we have the parenting plan, we have the source documents uh, that's causing the client to come in. Okay, let's do another quick poll. Um, and then we're going to go, uh, we're actually just on time. We're going to do uh, a little bit on research. All right, so what do you expect from the initial consultation? So we'll get everybody a chance to answer this and we're gonna move into doing research. Who do we have on that one? That's me. All right, real quick, if you're hiring a lawyer, look at the reviews like Michelle said, uh, look at their website, look at the some of the cases they've been reported on. If you are the lawyer who is doing the consultation and they're coming in with a very specific uh, question, you may want to get some current case law on that topic or read the legislation that deals with the topic. Having a 
social worker therapist. This is going to be you, Carolyn. But before we get to you, let's, let's see what our audience is thinking. So what do you expect? Meet and greet, 6% information, 10%. Detailed legal advice, 29%. A roadmap going forward, um, 52%. You know, this is interesting. Um, I'm not sure if we're in a position to give detailed legal advice at an initial consultation. We may not have all the information. We can't, may not be able to do a net family property statement or a SAG, or there could be an outstanding pension. Um, Fast and quick, let's go through the panel. Detailed advice on the first consultation, Carolyn, yes or no? I don't think you can. You can give, you know, preliminary ideas. And I mean, sometimes you might, I might look at a SAG, but the issue with a consult is you're only getting information one-sided. And so I'm completely relying on what this person is telling me. Sometimes they don't really know the other person's income um, or it might be more complicated where they might think, oh, this person is employee. And it might turn out that they're actually, you know, self-employed and you know running under, under a corporation so it's very difficult to give you know complex legal advice um, but it gets it gets the dialogue going and gives you a general idea of where you know what issues are relevant to your situation Annie 20 seconds or less do you give detailed advice at the first meeting no Michelle same as Carolyn no detailed advice but I will give a general roadmap with lots of you know, we don't have the details. We have 1% of the information right. today. So here's what I think we're going to do. It could change. Roadmap Sorry, I didn't realize I was I was muted when I tried to answer you, Russ. My answer is no, not at the initial. Uh, first of all, there are, again, you're not retained, so you're not in a position to give legal advice. And uh, secondly, there's not enough information. I keep it general and I say, you know, this is something that you'll have to discuss with, you know, with your right. lawyer once you retain your lawyer or with me once you retain me. Okay, last topic, one minute or less, Carolyn, social worker therapist, and then we're going to go into Q&A. Yeah, no, thanks, Russ. So, yeah, this is a big one. Um, and I, I guess I'm only giving you a minute. That's not fair. <laughs> You're giving you a minute. But the reality is that, you know, going through divorce or separation, it's just, it's really an emotional experience um, and it can be very challenging. So I think the biggest thing is to remember that, you know, you're hiring a lawyer and paying a lawyer to give you legal advice. You're not hiring a lawyer or paying a lawyer to give you like emotional support. So the best thing for a social worker to do would be um, to help you with emotional support. It's, as I said, it can be very stressful. If you're dealing with some parenting issues, the social worker could be invaluable in, you know, giving tips for, you know, parenting plans, giving tips for how to cope. If you're looking at co-parenting, a social worker can help also managing the dynamics of co-parenting. And also social worker reality is they can be a wealth of knowledge about like community resources. Um, they might have access to programs or additional supports or programs or courses that they might recommend that you take as well as for, you know, counseling or support groups. So overall, as I think you're looking at, you know, assembling your team, you have, you know, your legal support, and then you'd also have your emotional support with uh, the assistance of a social worker. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, so now we're going to go into audience Q&A. And magically, I think Shannon's going to appear. Look, there she is. Welcome back. Here I am. Thank Good you. Uh, thank you. Thank you to all of our speakers and thank you to everyone who sent in questions. Um, we're trying, we're going to try to get in a couple more questions just before we sign off. So um, one that came in was, do you have any tips for saving money when dealing with a lawyer? Annie? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll do that because it goes back to what I said earlier, which is be judicious in your communications. Remember that every email that you send uh, is billable work. So if you're going to send 30, that is a good way to ensure that, you know, your retainer is is going to be depleted. Make sure that you set limit your communications to those that are relevant and that you um if, if you're responding to a question, answer the question that is put to you. And if you have questions for your lawyer, make sure that you are concise and that you put it together in an easy, digestible form because, you know, we, we bill in terms of the time that's expended. And also be organized. Take what Carolyn said, what Michelle said about your documents to mind. The more time you can spend gathering those documents, the better it is. Because if you end up sending, you know, Caitlin, the invaluable Caitlin, a, a huge document dump, and she has to spend her time digging out what's relevant and then collating it and then, you know, making sure that everything is together. That's, that's, you've wasted your own time. And now you've done nothing to reduce your costs. And try not to try to avoid spilling your coffee on the documents too, right? Oh my God. Coffee rings on documents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, or, or, and, but seriously, when, when people provide documents that have handwriting on them or pen marks, things that we then have to go into Adobe and edit out, that also takes time. So right. clean copies. One more question, uh, Shannon. Yes. Thank you, Annie. Uh, we have time for one more question here. So we have, what do you tell a client when they say getting a team of experts for collaborative approach as opposed to just one lawyer is not as cost effective? I love this question, right? The team saves money. You've got one financial professional assembling a document brief for the whole team as opposed to two lawyers, maybe two law clerks, and then the merry round of disclosure complaining about what's there and what's not. You have a family professional who's likely gonna meet with the parents before the first meeting and present a parenting plan at the first meeting. Again, you're saving lawyers time. These professionals are a much uh, less expensive way of getting these issues resolved. Great question, Shannon. Thank you. Um, so just want to thank everyone again for sending those questions in and for participating in the polls today um, and just for joining the presentation and just want to thank Michelle, Annie and Carolyn for sharing their time and expertise uh, with Russ on the panel today. And so once again, we're just very grateful for all of you supporting our virtual event series and we hope we have the opportunity to host you again soon.